So why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We are going through, slowly but surely, through the book of Titus. And this little book of three chapters has has been a joy to read, to preach through. We're reading it in our uh, morning scripture reading, and we're in the book of Titus. And so God is telling us, go to the book of Titus. So here we're going to look at Titus chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 9 to 11, but let's pick it up in verse 8, just to kind of get us a flow of the text. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, let's read there. Titus 3, verse 8 reads, This is a trustworthy statement, and according and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and conflicts about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we need your help. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the truth that it contains. Thank you that you have revealed this book to us at this moment, at this time. And so I pray all your people that are gathered here would be built up from it. And help me, Spirit of God, to proclaim your truth so that they would not hear my voice, but the voice of their shepherd this morning. That they would be built up in Christ. That your church would be pure. That your church would be protected. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Discipline is a necessary but avoided word. We all know we need it, but we all run from it. It is like vegetables in the Laxton house. We all know it is good for us, but we avoid it. The same is true in the Christian life. Discipline can sometimes feel restrictive can feel harsh, antiquated, yet it's a very clear command in Scripture. Disciplining, especially wayward Christians, also known as confronting Christians in love, also known as church discipline, is the practice of the New Testament. Matthew 18, Jesus instructs His church on the procedure for church discipline. Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2 instructs the posture for church discipline. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 12 shows the priority of church discipline. And in our passage of Titus 3, 9 to 11, we'll see the purity from church discipline. So the title of this sermon this morning, of my sermon, is The Purity of the Church. The Purity of the Church. Christ wants to purify the church by discipline in the church. Christ wants to purify the church by discipline in the church. But what exactly is church discipline? What exactly is it? Carl Laney describes it this way. I think it's helpful. He says, Church discipline may be defined as the confrontive and corrective measures taken by an individual, church leaders, or the congregation regarding a matter of sin in the life of a believer. It's in the life of a believer. This is the first thing we want to make sure we understand. Church discipline is only for believers. We don't discipline unbelievers. We discipline believers in the church. And there's different scopes of it. Individual, leaders, and then the entire congregation. And always regarding the matter of sin. When we think of church discipline, if you've ever heard that term, most of us think... Oh, it's about removing someone. Oh, it's about when the church kicks someone out of the church. Or it's about excommunication. Now, while it is true that it is involving at the final step the removal of a wayward and sinning believer, that's not its goal. The goal of church discipline is not removal. It's not just confrontation, but correction. It's not just separation, but restoration. The goal is to restore sinners. 
Why? Because Jesus loves His church. And He wants to purify His church. The purpose of church discipline is to restore fallen members, which purifies the church and glorifies Christ. When a sinning believer is rebuked and turns from their sin and forgiven, they're won back to fellowship with the people and they're won back to fellowship with God. The goal of church discipline is not to embarrass people, not to exercise authority and power in some sort of unbiblical manner. The purpose is to restore the sinning believer to holiness and bring them back into a pure relationship within the church and with God. Now, how are we to do this? How are we to exercise this practice of purity in the church? Or to ask it in the language of Titus, in Titus chapter 2.10, where he says that we are to adorn, how is the church to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything? How are we to do that? Well, the answer is, in part, through church discipline. John L. Dagg said this, When discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. When discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. How does Christ purify His church? He gives us three ways to maintain the purity of the church. And the outline is very simple. We're looking at only three verses in Titus 3, 9 to 11. We're going to look at avoiding the foolish, verse 9. We're going to look at warning the factious, verse 10. And then we're going to look at rejecting the fallen, verses 10 to 11. So first let's look at avoiding the foolish. Avoiding the foolish. In verse 9 he begins this way, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, let me ask this question. Are Christians to avoid controversy? Are Christians to avoid controversies of any kind? Well, that's nearly impossible to do. Christians cannot avoid controversy. We're surrounded by controversy. Think of the life of the Apostle Paul. He was always being pursued with controversy. He was sent by Christ to preach the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Non-Jews. That's controversial. He's been dead, the Apostle Paul has, for over 2,000 years for about 2,000 years, and he continues to be controversial today. There are many who are trying to reinvent Paul's view of justification by faith alone and saying we need now to have new perspectives, plural, on justification, how a person is saved. There's controversies that, that followed Paul. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was controversies that followed Him. His commands were controversial when He said, take up your cross Deny yourself and follow after me. In fact, he taught more about hell than he did about heaven. That's controversial. He taught more about money than heaven and hell combined. And so Christians cannot avoid controversy. Rather, there are times we must take on controversial things. In fact, in the past, the church, Christians have always taken on controversy. For example... Doctrinal issues like the Trinity. Doctrinal issues like the person of Jesus Christ. Issues like the Lord's table. Also known as communion or baptism. Controversial things. The inerrancy of Scripture had to be addressed. The greatest mind that America has ever produced the greatest theological mind that America has ever produced was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was kicked out of his church. <clears throat> he was kicked out of his church because he believed that communion was only for believers. And they kicked him out. He became a missionary to the Indians. was asked to be a president of a seminary, which he was never able to fulfill because he died shortly after. Controversy. Controversy. What are the controversial issues that Christians are fighting over today? Well, apparently, we don't know what a woman is. We don't know what justice is. We don't know what marriage is. And we don't know what a pastor is. That's how much we are still discussing controversy today. 
In every age, Christians are called to address certain controversial issues because they have eternal consequences. A believer may live a life of gladness or misery, a life of assurance or of uncertainty. Now, our text, let me just state the obvious. Our text is not saying avoid controversy. But what's it saying? Avoid what? Foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. The word for avoid literally means to go around. It's in the imperative mood and in present tense, meaning we need to regularly avoid these kinds of foolish issues, these foolish topics, these controversial discussions. You want to avoid them, saints. You want to avoid them. Don't engage them, but avoid them. And there's four categories of foolishness, foolish things that we are to avoid. He describes them as controversies, genealogies, strife, and conflicts, and then about and conflicts about the law. These are all foolish. And the word for foolish is the word moros, where we get the word moron. They're moronic. So what are some examples of controversies that we want to avoid? We want to avoid things like numerology. We want to avoid things like cosmology. We want to avoid things like astrology. Here's an example of numerology. And some of you text me about things like this and I realize that I should not be addressing them. I should be avoiding them. Sometimes it comes this way. There are some Christians who teach that the resurrection wasn't on the first day of the week, but that it was on the eighth day of the week. Now think about that. Not the first day of the week, but the eighth day of the week. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Same thing as the first day. Why the eighth day? Well, hang with me for a second. They believe that it's on the eighth day. Same thing as the first day, but there's a reason for the number eight. They say that because Noah's Ark contained eight people. The eight people were rescued from the flood. It's a picture of the resurrection. So the conclusion, how do we apply this? The conclusion is that if you encounter a heartbreak in a relationship and you see the number eight, it's a reminder that you will experience healing power of resurrection. That's how you apply it, the number eight. This is numerology. This is numerology. And I don't, I don't even know how to respond to this because this is violating all the rules of interpretation that I have ever known. You take a number, you flip it around, you inject it into the Bible like a drug and see if the thing will dance. That's, that's what they're doing. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4 says, He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. So avoid things like numerology when there's numbers and interpreting the Bible through all these weird connections of numbers. Another would be astrology, looking at the stars, looking at the heavens, Looking at horoscopes, these are all incompatible. Deuteronomy verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 19, this is incompatible with Christianity, with God. He says this, Beware, do not lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. You see, horoscopes, astrology, They're foolish because they replace God's revealed word to guide you in this life. The basic belief of astrology, you know, those also those horoscopes that you that you see at the, I think they still have them, at at the checkout at the grocery store, is that they want you to believe that planets and stars exert some kind of influence upon your life. It's foolish because it produces you to exercise faith in the stars, in the planets. In nature, in birth months, instead of placing your faith where? In God. It's foolish. It's foolish. Another example is the controversy of cosmology. Cosmology, the origin of the earth. Is the earth flat or is the earth a sphere? Oh, avoid this, dear friends. Do not engage anyone with these controversial issues of numerology, astrology, or cosmology. Another example is genealogies. 
And here in the book of Titus, he calls out genealogies specifically. He says, avoid foolish controversies and also foolish genealogies because in the book of Titus, there seems to be, wherever Paul goes, this sentiment that why are you preaching the gospel to Gentiles? You should be preaching the gospel to the Jews only. And so Paul knew that he had to proclaim as an apostle sent by Christ to the Gentiles, he had to go to the nations. That's why you see this emphasized in his ministry. All people, including Gentiles, in the pastorals are always offered salvation. Go to 1 Timothy, turn to your left, 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. He says this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What's good? Here's what's good. This God desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, not for some, but for all. The witness for this proper time. So here is Christ offering himself for all. The goal and the emphasis of Paul is that salvation is available to all men. All kinds of men. That there is one mediator for all races, all ethnicities. There's one race, multiple ethnicities. But there's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And again, he says the same thing in Titus chapter 2. Go back to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He says, For the grace of God has appeared... That's the incarnation of Christ when we see grace appearing, bringing salvation to all men. Because why is this important? Because the Jews believed that salvation only belonged to their people. And so they were proud of their people. And so they had genealogies that traced their heritage all the way back to Abraham. All the way back to Abraham. But then when you read about the genealogies of Christ, what do you see? When you go back to Matthew, when you go back to Luke, when you read those genealogies, what do you find? What you find in those genealogies is the blood of Gentiles mixed in, in the line of Christ. You have Ruth, a Moabite. A Moabite. Not from Abraham, but from his nephew, Lot. And if you remember what Lot did with his daughters, just read. You have Bathsheba. She's a Hittite. A non-Jew. Gentiles. Through these people, through these Gentiles, Christ will come forth from the line of David, from the line of Abraham. The point is it does not matter what line, what ethnicity you come from, all are offered salvation. The gospel is free to all men, to anyone, anywhere, in any nation. What happens is, all these controversies, what do they produce? Strife. It caused people to fight. It's literally beating, the word for strife, a man who fights with his fists, disputing always about the law. That's an important phrase. Why are these things always talked about in the church? Because they take these foolish things. If they left the foolishness to be just foolishness, that's one thing. But what they do is they try to insert it into the Bible. Well, you see the number eight. Right? Well, you see the sphere... You see, all these things are inserted back into the Bible, disputes about the law, and they're foolish. What they do is they remove the right way to read the Bible, and they're warping the Bible, perverting the Bible, and making it to say things that the Bible never says. God's Word was written, and it was not so that you would look for numbers to find purity in your genealogy, argue about the shape of the earth. The point of the law is to see... Your inability is to show your inability that you can't obey it. But you need Christ who obeys it for you. You need Christ who fulfills everything about the law. To point us as a tutor, leading us to Christ. So the command, dear saints, is not to engage when you hear these things. Don't engage. Avoid. Avoid it. Don't, the idea is don't waste your time doing these foolish things because they are what Paul says to Titus and Back in our text, they are unprofitable and unfruitful. They are unprofitable and worthless. They're worthless. 
Instead of spending time in foolish controversies, we must be busy doing what it says in verse 8, the previous verse. Here's what we ought to be doing. He says, so that those who believe God will be intent to engage or to lead in good works. That's what we ought to be doing because those things are profitable. That's profitable for men to be busy engaging in good works. Spurgeon said this about this passage. He said, There are certain professing Christians who spend half their lives in fighting about nothing at all. There is no more in their contention than the difference between Tweedledum and Tweedledee. But they will divide a church over it. They will go through the world as if they have found a great secret. It is really not of any consequence whatever, but having made the discovery, they judge everybody by their newfound fad. Our business is neither to ask or answer foolish questions, but to avoid them altogether. And listen to this. He says, if we observe the apostles' precept to be careful to engage in good deeds, we shall find ourselves far too much occupied with profitable business to take much interest in unworthy, contentious, and needless striving. Spurgeon is the king of obvious. He's, the, he's Captain Obvious before there was a Captain Obvious. He is saying, if we busy ourselves doing what we ought to be doing, we won't have time for the foolishness of all these things that are wasting our time. Often people who are caught up in these controversies are those that have too much idle time. They don't even serve in the church. They kind of just are noisy gongs squawking around. They're not serving. They're not doing anything. They're just like little birds chirping, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Mark Knoll, in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, begins that book with this famous sentence. He says, The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. We have fallen and no longer discerning. The entire chapter begins by insulting the evangelical world for lacking biblical discernment. Beloved, there are controversies worth engaging in. There are some very much worth our time because they are harming the church. They are harming people. But then there are times they're just... Ignore that. They're not profiting me at all. I'm not being built up in God at all. I'm not being built up in Christ at all. Now, for maybe for some of you, this may be something really important to you. This this controversy that you find yourself in, this 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 foolish controversy that you find yourself being bound up in, they may mean a lot to you, but do they mean a lot to God? Will it help the people of God? Will it make them become more like the Son of God? Avoid these things. Avoid the foolish. But secondly, there comes a point where avoiding is not enough. Verse 10, we move from avoiding the foolish to warning the factious. Warning the factious. In verse 10, we have a very simple verse. He just says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. We don't go straight to rejection, but there's a warning. There there ought to be a warning that's given to people that are divisive, that are factious. There comes a time when foolish controversies, avoiding them is not enough. We must escalate. We move from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 3. The defense condition moves up because this man or this woman is not just wasting time in foolish controversies, but they're spreading it in the church. And when they spread it in the church, what do do they do? They divide. They divide the church. They divide. He is factious. That word factious is the word iritakon, where we get the word heretic. Heretic. He is one who is splitting from orthodox to heterodox, from the, the, the common main way to a different way, splitting, dividing the church. So what do we do with factious people? We warn them. Where did Paul get the whole idea of warning them once? first time and a second time? Well, he's just following the commands of Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Go to Matthew chapter 18. This is the Lord's command. The Lord has commanded the church to address certain things. 
especially those who sin. In, in Acts, or Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17, let me read it with you here. It says, Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, tell, let him be to you as the Gentile and tax collector. Notice the number of warnings in this text that Jesus is giving. First, he says, warn them in private. Warn them in private. He says, if your brother sins, you go to him. You show him his faults. You as an individual, you as a Christian, go to him. That's church discipline. The moment you talk to a brother or sister and confront them, that's church discipline. You are lovingly going to them, warning them in private. And notice, it's always the believer, your brother. You don't discipline unbelievers. What do you do with unbelievers? evangelize unbelievers. Unbelievers will do what unbelievers do. They sin. They do unchristian things. But Christians, however, are expected to do Christian things. So the process begins of purifying Christians in the church by confronting them privately. You show them their faults. And if he listens to you, you've won him. You've won your brother, your sister. The goal is always to win them. To win them back. Don't do that. Why did you do that? I noticed you... You said that. Did you really mean that or did I misunderstand you? Did you, did you do that to your, say that to your wife or did you do that to your, at your workplace or whatever the case may be? I noticed something. I need to talk with you. I need to talk with you. That's a first warning. That's a first warning. Going to them in private. And if he doesn't listen to you, maybe they're thinking, well, you're just after me because you, you really don't like me. The reason you're, you're coming after me is because you just don't like me. You've always had it against me. So, you, so what, what do you do? Well, you, it says in verse 16 in Matthew is if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be, may be confirmed. So the idea is you take others along with you to establish facts according to Deuteronomy 19.15. You are there to see, listen, it's not just me seeing this. It's, it's not just me that's noticing this about you. He is also noticing this about you. She is also noticing this about you. We together, all of us, from different perspectives, different, we're, I'm, none of them necessarily even know you personally, but this is one thing they've seen you do. The witnesses establish facts. An objective third party is helpful, not just in clarity, but to remove any type of personal attacks. I'm not attacking you. I am loving you and I want to point things out. And I'm, just, I'm not the only one seeing this. If you take two or three witnesses, you're still warning them. It's still the first warning, but they just didn't listen to you. You take others with you. You're not doing this to gang up or anything like that. You're telling other witnesses to see, to bring clarity. Was this really what happened? Or is it just from your perspective? No, they saw it too. They heard it too. The third warning in verse 17. He says, and if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, now you tell it to the church. You now tell it to the church. If the sinning brother or sister continues to refuse to listen, you expand the level of accountability from something small to something slightly bigger now to the entire family of God. Because this is now a family matter. And the church is involved out of love to confront this brother or sister that's wayward, that's in their sin, coming alongside them. This brother or sister to try to win them back. This is the second warning. There's a difference between if me if it's just me coming to you, that's one thing. That's one thing. But now if it's the whole church coming to you, why are you doing this? Come back. Why do you why are you in this path of sin? Why are you living this way? Why are you with this person that you shouldn't be with? You're a married man. You're a married woman. Why are you doing this? Why are you living this way? The church brings greater accountability. Warning, warning, warning. Confronting sin is a gracious and loving thing to do. We do it out of love. And notice, church discipline isn't just in the end. It's in the beginning. 
It's constant. It's formative correction. Formative all the time. And there's another type of correction, which is uh, a type of uh, discipline, which is corrective discipline. There's formative discipline, and then there's corrective discipline. But it's all done out of love. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a little book um, that he wrote called Life Together, he says this, Reproof is unavoidable in the Christian life. He's talking about ministry in the, in the, in, in the life of the Christian. He says, Reproof is unavoidable. God's word demands it when a brother falls into open sin. And listen to what he says. Nothing can be more cruel than leniency, which abandons others in their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. You see, if after multiple warnings, you've, 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 you've pled with your brother or sister, you've, you've asked them, don't do that, and they still refuse to listen to you, that you're no longer just warning them. They're, they remain unrepentant for weeks, for months, they remain unrepentant after multiple warnings. Then we move to this final step in order for the church to be made pure. It's no longer just about warning the factious. Now it's about rejecting the fallen. Go back to Titus. Go back to Titus. He says in Titus chapter 3.10, he says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted in his sinning, being Self-condemned. The word reject is a, again an imperative. It's a command. It's in the present tense again. You're to do this. You're to reject them. Refuse them. The factious man is described by one commentator as a quarrelsome. One who stirs up factions through erroneous opinions. A man who is determined to go his own way. Does not listen. I've heard you, but I'm going to do this anyway because this is what I want to do. I've heard you and I will ignore you. They won't ever say it in those terms. They may say it that, this way. I didn't like the way you said that. I didn't like your tone. So I'm going to continue down my sin. I didn't like the way you spoke to me, even though it was the truth, but I'm going to go down this path. They form their own way and they take others with them and they form parties and factions in the church. MacArthur describes this man as one who has become a, quote, law unto himself and has no concern for spiritual truth or unity. You see, no amount of warning has borne repentance in this person. So therefore, divisions are now forming. The saints are now confused. Well, from the pulpit, I hear this. I hear that God is sovereign. But what this man is saying is God is not sovereign. Here, it's from the pulpit saying that God is the one who is responsible for salvation. But over here, I'm hearing something else. Or maybe... The, the church is saying, don't do this, but this person is clearly doing this. And so there's confusion, there's division. And so in order to prevent further harm within the body, it says this person must be rejected or removed from the church. And this may seem harsh when you think of removing them. Removing them? Why would you remove someone from the church? Why would you remove them? Knowing this, this is, listen to what Paul says. There's a reason why you want to remove a man or a woman from the church. Because, in verse 11, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. He's one who is described as perverted. That means that verb perverted, it's in the passive. Meaning something or someone warped their thinking. Some false teaching from the outside or some idea has passively done a work in them. They didn't do this on their own. It was something that they heard, a teaching, an influence, a worldliness, an ungodliness that they should have been denying, according to the grace of God in Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Instead of denying it, they've opened up their arms to it. And so this ungodliness, this worldliness has now shaped this man to think the way he's thinking. And so he has become perverted in that he is actively deviating from what is considered moral, right, proper, or good. He has refused to repent and constantly sinning, which has resulted in his mind being perverted in the way of thinking and the result of him living his life. And that's, that's true. If I believe 
that God's grace is all I need and that I don't have to change my life in anything. It doesn't matter what I do. It is all covered under grace. I don't have to repent from sin. I don't have to change and grow at all because it's all under grace. I've become warped. I've become perverted in my way of life. Repentance is just a change in my mind, but not a change in my behavior. It's become a warped view. Not only is he perverted, he's also sinning. He's constantly sinning. It's in the present tense, indicating that he remains unrepentant. He remains unrepentant. He will not deviate, change course from a path of sinfulness to a path of righteousness. So what do you do with such men? You reject them. You reject them. You deal with with them directly, swiftly. Go to uh, 1 Timothy again. Here's an example of what this looks like. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20. Paul says this about two men in particular that were very contentious, very divisive, going along their own way, dividing the church because of their sin. And here's what he says to Timothy in the pastoral epistles. This is what he says in verse 20 of chapter 1. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. This handing over to Satan is a picture of church discipline and that they're being removed from the protection of the church, the fellowship of the church, the loving tenderness of care in the church and removing them and handing them over outside the protection of the church unto Satan. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to them, the church, if he listen, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, remove him. Remove him. Treat him like a tax collector. One who you do not want. Put them outside. Put them outside. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul said this about the man who was in sin. He was involved in sexual immorality where a man was having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, he says he gives them over outside of the church for the destruction of his flesh. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When someone is removed from the midst of the protection of the church, they will be facing sin all the time. And either they will realize, I don't want this. I don't want the constant bombardment of sin in my life. I hate sin, but I have no one to turn to. They need to feel that because they're being handed over to Satan. If they're the Lord's, that's what they will feel. But if they're not the Lord's, they will be like, I love this. I love sin. Finally, I'm free. And what does that do? It protects the church. They were never a believer in the first place. The church is protected. You see that? The church is protected from that sinning so-called brother. They've claimed Christ they professed Christ, but they did not possess Christ. Remove him. They're spreading their falsehood and their sin in the church. They're put outside for the destruction of his flesh. That doesn't necessarily mean that they die. That means that they would be under the bombardment of sin and without the protection of the church. Remove them. Reject them. But I want to say this in the last few moments that we have together is it doesn't have to end this way. It doesn't have to end in utter rejection of someone and excommunication with someone. The hope is always restoration. The hope is that they would repent and come back and be restored. But the question I ask when passages like Matthew 18, Titus chapter 2 are taught, the one thing that I, 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 I always not hear too much of is what does biblical repentance look like? What does it look like for someone who has been excommunicated, someone who has been disciplined, what does it look like for them to actually repent of their sin? What does true repentance look like? I want to address that for a moment here. Repentance is a change of direction, a confession of sin followed by a desire to make restitution, to rebuild relationships that have been broken because of that sin. And in general, make everything right. There's an overall disposition. I've done wrong and I want to make everything right. There is an acknowledgement of their sin honestly. It's like what Psalm 51 says, against you and only you have I sinned when David sinned because of his sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah and against the families and against God. He sins. 
They forsake sinful behavior, which initiated the discipline. There's a clear break from whatever sinful behavior they were doing. That no longer happens. There's a, a clear break from that. Not only that, but there's a pursuit. This is how biblical evidence is ev- uh, true repentance is evidence. There's a pursuit of counsel, a pursuit of biblical counsel. If needed to gain victory over sinful patterns of behavior, please help. Please help me. I, I don't want to fall back into this. Please help. I'm struggling with this. I, it keeps causing me to sin again and again. Please help. And they initiate confession and asking forgiveness for all parties. Not just the pastor, but for all parties that they have offended. They've all offended others. In fact, Jesus says this, before you even come to church, before you even bring up your offering to the altar, get right with your brother, the one that you've offended, the one that you've, you've, you've uh, given the cold shoulder, the one that you know and everyone knows you are not getting along with. Get right with them. A broken person, a truly repentant person will want to do that first instead of appear holy by coming to church, going to church and presenting their offering, taking the Lord's table, taking communion. No, I am so broken over my sin that I will forego my worship of God and get right with my brother. Another evidence is they they exhibit a spirit of humility and brokenness. That's really a key mark. There's a brokenness, a humility that reveals the work of God the Spirit of God in their life. That's Psalm 51 again. Now, we cannot see the heart of people. We can't see what's going on. In, I don't see what's going on in your heart. I don't, I, cannot, I don't have x-ray vision to see what is going on in your heart. But there are evidences that you, as an individual, can tell that if you're truly repentant. This is for you now. This is not for me to examine you. This is for you, of how you can examine if you've truly repented from your sin. If you have been disciplined in the church and if you have really been repentant, not just in the end, but in the beginning of church discipline as well, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse, which is not repentance, is just feeling bad for yourself. Remorse is short-lived. Repentance is long-lived. I will continually fight against this sin. Remorse is, it involves emotions. I feel bad. Tears are coming down. There's emotion. But true repentance is emotion and the will to change. You not just feel sorrow in your heart, but you actually want to do something about it. You are making decisions to no longer do or be exposed or be tempted in that direction which led you to be disciplined in the first place. Remorse is when you exp- you're distressed by the consequences. He is crying, she is crying, they are feeling sad, because of the consequences of what they've done. That's remorse. They're crying because that means they've been removed from leadership. They're crying because now they're removed from a position of ministry in the church. They're crying because now their sin is exposed. That's remorse. Repentance is distraught, not but what this means. I'm distraught because of what I have done. You see the difference? Repentance is, I am... I'm not even thinking of what this means. I'm thinking about what I've done. My heart is broken because of the sin that I have committed against God. Remorse is someone who makes vague resolutions. I won't do that again. I won't do that again. I won't hurt anyone again. That's a vague resolution. True repentance is specific resolutions. I will not go here. I will not be with this person. I will not be with this man again. I will not have this phone in my pocket. I will not have this conversation again. That relationship that I once had is ending. And here's how I'm going to make sure that that relationship is ended. Here are the people that I'm going to surround myself with. That's how it ends. Remorse wants public attention. Repentance accepts humble obscurity. Remorse desires immediate return to positions of ministry. Repentance recognizes the need to rebuild trust over time. It's going to take time to rebuild relationships. You can't just be thrust back into whatever you were doing before. Remorse is about external displays of contrition. Repentance is about an internal desire for change. Remorse is finding fault in how he is treated in the process of discipline. I didn't like their tone. I didn't like what they said about me. That church is mean. A person is truly repentant is, I sinned. I really did. I really did. 
And I'm so glad that they pointed that out because if I was not stopped at that point, I could have gone the next step. I could have gone even further in my sin. I could have done this. I would be divorced right now if they did not stop me. I would be in jail if they did not stop me. That's the heart of a person who's broken. Truly broken. A person who experiences just remorse, they hesitate to follow counsel and and instead in in reconciling and restitution. But the repentant person, they initiate action towards restoring broken relationships. They want to do this. They want to make restitution. They want to pay what they owe. If there's any financial violations that they've committed, they want to repay and make restitution. See the difference between remorse and repentance. But you may say to yourself, well, what about what Jesus says? Aren't we... Why do we have to bring them before the church? Doesn't the Bible say, forgive them up to 70 times 7? In Matthew 18, verse 21 to 22, this verse is often quoted. Why even bring someone up? Why even confront them? Shouldn't we just forgive them? This is what Matthew 18, verse 21 to 22 says. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For the common interpretation is, forgiveness is unconditional. Now, doesn't, they don't have to do anything. Just forgive them. Based on this text. So they quickly forgive. Without any, res- any reservations upon the person. There's another passage in Luke chapter 17. Where Jesus says this. Be on guard. Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The only way you can repent, oh, the only way you can forgive your brother or sister is if they've repented. At that point, you forgive him. Because without repentance, we are not to forgive the sinning brother or sister and act as if nothing happened. We can't just forgive them. They're, they're in their sin, and we can't just wave our hands and say, you're forgiven. As if nothing happened. If they repent. Jesus puts a condition. Have they repented? But they fallen, They fell again, Lord. Have they repented? Forgive them. But they've fallen again. Have they repented? Forgive them. How many times, Lord? Up to 70 times 7. Forgive them. In other words, here they go again. They, 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 they fell again. Well, Jesus says, well, did they repent? Yeah, they did. Did they, they, they forsake that sin? Yes, they did. Well, then forgive your brother. Forgive your brother. Forgive them. Because this life is an imperfect life. We will fall again and again. But the, the, the pattern of every fall is this pattern of repentance. I'm seeking repentance. There are victories that will eventually, you will eventually win over some of these sins, some of these areas of sin. And so the Lord was basically paraphrasing that would be like this. How many times do I forgive my brother who sins against me and then repents asking forgiveness? The Lord's answer is saying, forgive him as many times as he repents and asks for forgiveness, even if it is 490 times. Now, what are the benefits of church discipline? What do we gain when we discipline people in the church? What are the benefits? Why do this? Well, first, Jesus commands it. That's enough. But here's a big picture. It, it, the benefits of church discipline, the honor of God's name is protected. The honor of God's name is protected. We have a testimony as God followers. His name is protected. Secondly, the integrity of the church is preserved. The integrity of the church. What is the church going to be known about? A bunch of sinners that are doing whatever? No. The church is, there must be integrity within the church, a purity within the church. Thirdly, it's a rescue of wayward believers is performed. The rescue of wayward believers is performed. There's a rescuing that's taking place. Fourthly, a warning to the assembly is pronounced. There's a warning that must that everyone must know about. And lastly, the purity of the church is protected. The purity of the church is protected. These are the benefits of church discipline. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, I don't know if I can forgive someone who is unrepentant. What about the person who has left the church? They've gone their own way. You've seen that happen here in our church where we have removed um, individuals, men and women from the church and they've continued in their unrepentant ways. What do you do? 
how do you relate to that person? How do you prevent bitterness from growing in your own heart against that person that has been removed? How does that look like? Well, you can forgive them before God. You can forgive them before God. This is a picture. There's a picture of forgiving someone before God in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7 verse 60 where you see Stephen being stoned to death and he looks up to the heavens. He looks up to the heavens and he sees the Lord standing and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's in a very real sense saying, Father, forgive them. I can't forgive them. They've not repented against me for the sin that they're doing against me. But Father, would you forgive them? I forgive them in the Lord. And when we do that, we are entering into a suffering that Christ himself experienced. Because so many people sinned against Christ. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. They never went to Christ and asked for their forgiveness. But he's forgiving them in the Lord. And what will that do? That prevents our hearts from remaining bitter against them. Because sure, they've, they've left the church Clearly, they've abandoned the faith. Clearly, they have walked away. Clearly, they have damaged people here. But to prevent bitterness in our own heart, we can forgive them in the Lord. Because if we don't, you will continually be angry against them and instead know they're an unbeliever. Treat them as such. I leave you with this. Church discipline is for the good of Christ's church. Bonhoeffer says this. He urges the church to follow the Lord's instruction on church discipline. He says this. Our brother's ways are not in our hands. We cannot hold together what is breaking. We cannot keep life in what is determined to die. But God binds elements together in the breaking, creates community in the separation, grants grace through judgment. He has put His word in our mouth. He wants it to be spoken through us. If we hinder His word, the blood of the sinning brother will be upon us. Dear church, we are to love Christ. If we are to love Christ, we must obey Christ. We must trust His method. This is not our method. This is Christ's method of purifying His church by disciplining the church. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is full and there are texts that are difficult to hear. I pray, would you arm us with the reality that this church is not ours. This is your church. This is the church that you have bought by your blood, by the blood of Christ, and you want to make it pure. And so I pray, help us to trust your ways, to trust your method, that we as a church would be kept pure from sinning ones, from those that have erred, from those that have and we pray, would you use us as instruments in your hands to redeem and to rescue others that have gone astray. Help us to do this out of fear of you. And Father, if it be your will to restore sinning ones, oh God, we would rejoice. We would rejoice just like the heavens will rejoice as a sinner repents from their sin. So, Father, be with us now as we continue to practice and keep your church pure in the practice of church discipline. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.